Uh, there was a, a bunch of rules. You know, there were 10 rules uh, that were punishable by death if you violate any of them, like like politicking against a fellow brother, showing weakness. Uh, you know, just a, there, there were a lot of formal rules. And uh, and then the name, they, they kind of amended the name. It was still Mexican Mafia, which the, the term Mexican Mafia, it, of course, Mafia is kind of like uh, a respect to a, a, a well-known organization, the Italian mob. Cosa Nostra, thing Cosa of ours. Nostra, yeah. So we, you know, or I say we, Guero Buff decided uh, Mafia, but Mexican Mafia. So when now when they did the formal rules, they said, okay, uh, there were guys that wanted to change the name. They wanted to drop Mafia so people wouldn't confuse the fellas with the uh, Italians. And everybody else said, no, 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 we're good with that. They said, well, what about, they compromised. How about Eme? Mm-hmm. E-M-E. Eme is the Spanish phonetic pronunciation of the letter M. So so the guy started, I, I tattooed Eme on my arm later. Uh, uh, so Eme was another uh, uh, name to re- in reference to the Mexican. Anybody that said, hey, is he from the Eme? They know, is he from the Mexican mafia? So they started terrorizing through the 60s. You had other prison gangs that formed, the NF, Nuestra Familia. They formed as a resistance group against the MS. So they became rivals. Then the Aryan Brotherhood. And most of the Aryan Brotherhood guys, we knew them from the lockup units from fighting. They would fight side by side with us against the blacks. So they were natural allies. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't predicated on race, that they hated blacks and blacks hated them. But we didn't look at the blacks again as, oh, we hate you because you're black. No. we power. Our, our animosity was based on power uh, 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 competition. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so the NF was our enemy, so they became, they formed an alliance of convenience with the BGF, Black Gorilla Family, and then we formed a similar alliance of convenience with the Aryan Brotherhood. So now you got those two gangs going against the other two gangs. And uh, uh, what I can tell you is in the... For that homicide I committed, I went in in 69. I ultimately got out in 75. I don't know how that happened. I got I did six years total. I mean, you certainly would have had a few violations while you were inside, right? Uh, more than that. I killed six people while I was behind bars and never got caught. Uh, and that's why I say I, I have to go it my way because if you start asking me questions, I'm going to tell you I can't talk about them because I can't. But I can tell you this. I killed six inmates. I was a co-conspirator, and I don't know how many more. And and in the in the ones that I committed personally, I can still remember as I'm uh, stabbing uh, uh, in a couple of, of incidents. I'm looking at some of the eyewitnesses again, like an out of body type of thing. I've got my target. I'm stabbing them repeatedly. I know I'm going to. I'm taking them out. I look. I see my. I see the eyewitnesses. And I see the look on their eyes of like shock and awe as they, they're, they're beholding this. And after I get away, I see them somewhere in the prison, talk to them casually. And some of them would say things like, hey, I didn't see nothing because mm-hmm. they know I, I made eye contact with them. I said, then let's not talk about it. And that was that. You know, so uh, I'm not going to ask you about him, but I'm just going to ask him, how is it that you were not charged with anything? Was never caught. You know, I was never caught. 
They didn't have cameras in the. In they the didn't areas. have cameras. They didn't have. Uh, I mean, they had eyewitnesses, mm-hmm. and that. I mean, today you get you have informants, you have eyewitnesses that come forward because they know they're going to be protected. Back then, there's no real PC. There's no real way to protect people. It's very difficult. So these guys were, but it was a shock and awe because they're seeing it happen. And, and you know, when you make the eye contact, I didn't plan that. It just happened, mm-hmm. and it worked in my favor. And I wasn't like a like a big bad guy or anything. I I was deadly. I I I was starting to enjoy killing, but I didn't flaunt it. I I was a normal guy walking to with the inmate population, respecting guys. They respected me, but they knew I was a big homie. They knew I was a, a made guy, as they said. Well, let's not talk about your cases, but give us an example. How does it go? How does something like that come about? If somebody says, okay. Give us an example of what would happen to create the offense that would say, okay, you got shot callers, right, or somebody, right, yeah. saying. So get, walk us through how does something like that happen? How do you identify an offense that says that's worthy of taking this guy out? Um, well, most of ours were enemy, guys that were rivals. There's uh, other guys who sympathize with the rivals that assist the enemy. Most of it was adversarial. Like that, like like street gang rivals, the white fence VNE thing. Inside now you got the MA and NF and BGF thing. So, so that you got what's, yeah. What's the process then for determining who gets hit? Who who authorizes that? Is there a council? I mean, no. We already know who's who. I mean, if if you are an enemy, if you're an NF member, it's open season. We we know you don't need a you don't need approval or anything no, else. No, it's no. just if the opportunity presents itself, right. it's your duty but, to take them out. But now. If you're in the adjustment center and Steve rips you off for drug money, we don't know this on the general population. So Steve comes out to the yard and the word filters out that, hey, Steve owes money. Collect it from him or do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. Or if, if you flagrantly ripped the guys off in there and said up yours or whatever, then the word comes out you know, hit him because he ripped off so-and-so. That's an incident that happened. They they hit a black guy, uh, Marcel Thomas, and uh, because he had ripped off one of the fellows in the adjustment center. So uh, Black Dan and Sailor got him on the upper tier, front and back, and and stabbed him. They They didn't tell him nothing. They just approached him. And so there's so many, there's so many reasons, unpaid debts, you know, and, and, uh, and the word the word can get out in a kite, you know, a written communication. Right. We call kites or notes, and uh, it can get uh, through the through uh, correspondence. If I'm writing to someone that's that's corresponding with another member uh, in another prison or wherever that, that that you know, it could be the same prison. If I'm locked up and I can't communicate uh, with another member but I'm writing to that other member's sister that's on general population, I can send a coded instruction. She can put in a letter coming back into that same prison on the general yard. You interpret that and you know what it means. You take care of the target. So it's just so, you know. Give us an example of what a coded instruction would look like. I mean, we've been on wiretaps before. Yeah. Somebody says, hey, I need six spare tires. We know what that means, you yeah, know, yeah. or something like that. How, do you, how did your coded yeah. instructions come across? A lot of it is very simple. Uh, when you uh, uh, do me a favor, when you talk to Steve, uh, 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 give him my regards. Mm-hmm. Simple as that. So Steve is the target. 
When you see Steve, give him my regards. Leave a message. Take him yeah, out. That means take him out. Can Could you just independently take somebody out? What's that? Can you independently take somebody out, or do, does somebody have to approve it? No, independently I can. The only one, the only time a, a made member cannot kill somebody without approval is if you're killing a fellow member hmm. for some infraction, because you have to know that this isn't a politicking thing, that this is real, that, that he did something that's worthy of being killed. Or if you have a guy beneath you, say a, a drug dealer that, that's generating money for you, and, and, you, and, and he's, he's underneath you, and uh, he did something to offend me on the streets, and I want to have him take him out, I, I have to go to you first as a courtesy and say, yeah. hey, your guy ripped me off, this is the incident, this is the proof, so he's going to go. And then you might tell me, well, then let me, let me handle it for you. That way I, you can replace him with somebody else or whatever. Right. So there, there, there is, there's a rhyme to, I mean, there's a, a, a rhyme to all the madness on how to proceed. Uh, and it's, it's pretty structured. It's not even in writing, but it's, it's all respect and it all comes over time over, uh, they've perfected it over time. Right. Now, do all of these activities take place in prison, or are there sometimes where somebody gets out? Uh, because really, I think what you were saying, and I think what people need to understand too, uh, MA Mexican Mafia, it really exists in the prison, right? It's not like you've got you've got people that were formerly members, right? Right. That or that that are members, but they're not no longer in prison. The real power is while everybody's in prison. The street, nineteen seventy, some of the older members, like the founder Widow Buff and a few others started being released from the inside and started drug activity, but not, not necessarily on behalf of the organization. It was for themselves, and they took care of some of the brothers that were behind bars. That's 1970. 1975, when I'm released, you got members like Joe Morgan, highly placed member, older gentleman, and a few others that are out when I get out. So I come out with this energy. Uh, I'm, I'm already a known killer for the organization. I told you I've, I killed six guys. You're about 25 years old now, right? I'm, uh, whatever it would be, from 49 to, yes, tw about 25, not, not yet 26. And um, I, uh, I come out with this dream. I was a non-user, very rare. I didn't use uh, heroin. Everybody else did. There's maybe three of us that did not. So that's a plus. I wanted to make money. I wanted to take the organization to a higher level. Joe had a, a connection with a drug family. They didn't call them cartels back then. They call them families. So uh, Jesus Arajo was the head of the Arajo family. He's got descendants now that are younger that, that, that many guys you, Steve, might, might know. Or, or, uh, but but the, I always ask the, the cartel guys, well, do, do you, is this the same? Is he a descendant of Jesus Arajo, which is Chewy? Mm -hmm. So anyway, he was Joe Morgan's connection for heroin and cocaine. And Chewy, who I met later uh, while I was out, uh, he gave us unlimited. He said, whatever you want. It's available. And so my thing is at the time is let's get let's get organized and let's get our let's in, install our dealers. So we had members 
that were living in Northern California. L.A. was like our titular headquarters. Mm -hmm. Okay. So our headquarters in L.A., we had guys everywhere. Now, Northern California, we had guys that had paroled to Bakersfield, uh, two to Visalia, one to Hayward, and a couple to San Francisco. So I'm telling Joe, I said, we got all the all the all the brothers in place plus the dope dealers in LA. Let me handle that. Let me find out all the guys that are dealing dope. Uh, I'll find out, and we'll start systematically replacing them with our dealers, or they sell our dope. We give them an option. Mm-hmm. So, like a like a like a sales rep. I I wasn't the kind of guy that would talk. I, I have a movie that was made. Uh, uh, based on my life story called Mundo. And in the movie, my character is portrayed as some street bully uh, you know, talking down to gang members. I, I, I never talked down to gang members. I always treated them like men the way I would want to be treated. But my message was clear. You know, I knew they were selling dope. I said, from now on, you're going to sell our dope. This is the deal we're going to give you. It's going to be consistent, the quality. And most of the people complied. The ones that did not comply, we killed them right there on the spot. And then we replaced them almost immediately. Mm-hmm. On, on a couple of occasions, we went back to, uh, to uh, install new, new uh, members or new uh, dealers. And the crime scene tape was still up from the ones that we had taken out. Jeez. And it was no big deal for us. It was business. We never looked at it like, oh, I killed somebody and I couldn't sleep at night or whatever. No, I mean, that's how warped. Yeah, no remorse. No, no more remorse, you know. And, and you would know that from dealing with your with cartel guys. I mean, they're fanatically sick. Right. It doesn't have meaning, significance. There's no value to human life. Well, we were the same way, but we were not shock and awe because we didn't want that kind of heat. Mm-hmm. We wanted it to be, we wanted the message to get accomplished and install our drugs Keep the heat off us as much as as, as we could. That that if there's a uh, the right way to do things, that's what we wanted to do, and that's what we thought we were doing. So that was our. I call that built. We were spreading the Emmet gospel and building the foundation that you see today. Back then, it was kind of loose. There was no such thing as Sureños. We called them Emmet associates. Some were highly placed. Some were just run of the mill uh, people. We never utilized street gangs to perform uh, murders for us. Our thinking was if we, once we do that, they did everything else. We had them selling dope, acquiring weapons, you know, whatever. Anything that you to make money except uh, to kill somebody, a target. If we, if we recruited a gang member to do that, we felt we'd have to kill them. Because they had too much knowledge. They had infor- they, and information. And they after that, you. Yeah. Heavy information on a heavy case that could put us away. So no gang members. We did our own work. And I and I was a specialist at that. I, I enjoyed it. I liked it. I knew what I was doing. I knew I was going to get away. On and on and on. Um, did, did you have a favorite way of committing murder? murder? Uh, no. No, I didn't. There, was it a gun or a knife? Or? Most, mostly guns, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't much uh, into lies, too sloppy. I, I wasn't into torture or anything like that. Just, you know, just kill them, uh, uh, get them eliminated. If they, if they need to be out of the way, 
the, the, the quicker they die, the better. So it was, it was mostly... Uh, and was it leaving them there to leave a message? Did you hide bodies, or what did you do? Just leave them where no, they were? No, yeah, just leave them where, where we killed them. The message, like in the gang world, like, like replacing the dealers, the message was... You didn't have to hang people from bridges or you know, none of that. You didn't have to do that because the, the the gang community was already in lockstep like, oh, shit, you know, this is real. This is happening here. It's happening here. That, that's the message. They know. But the so the leadership outside the prison now, you guys are composed of people from actually rival gangs, right? Yes. So, unified now. Unified now, but is there still so if you're unified at that level, what about though when it gets to the street, like for example, uh, NF and VNE? You know, are you still at odds on the street even though you're unified at your level? There was a period of time in the '90s. This is after I'm gone now. There's an involvement process. Uh, in the in the '90s, the uh, the uh, first of all, I, I can probably interject this real quickly. In 1988-1989, two prisons were built, Corcoran State Prison and Pelican Bay. And they were built uh, in the hope of disrupting communications between all the prison gangs and their constituents. Mm -hmm. So when they put everybody in those prisons to do that, they thought, good, we got all the leaders away and we can do it. So what did the uh, Mexican mafia do? They reinvented themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what gang members do. They reinvent themselves, especially behind bars. They created what's called a MESA system. The MESA system is comprised of, I'll just give you an example. I'm in Pelican Bay. Uh, my homeboy. Morgan. Yeah. Let's say my homeboy, Morgan. is Captain Morgan. I'm it, Captain Morgan. Oh, Captain Morgan. Captain Morgan. Is in, <laughs> you're in Folsom Prison. You're in Folsom. Okay. And you're not an MM member because they got all the prison gang guys in Corcoran and Pelican Bay. But you're a highly placed Sudeño. We call them camaradas. Camarada literally means... Like comrades, buddy. compatriots. Yeah. Buddies, yeah. Yep. So a camarada in the structure, in the Sudeño structure, is the high, highest placed Sudeño. So uh, you, Captain Morgan, are uh, you're a, a camarada, a highly placed Sudeño. I send word to you, create a mesa system of five guys. It's got to be an odd number, and in why in, I'll tell you. Okay, and in those five, in those five guys in in the mesa, you guys are going to run the yard, all the drugs, all the taxing, everything that goes on, and you're going to get a cut, a good cut of that because you're 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 on on the front line, and so this is played out in all these prisons, right? And the, now the reason for the 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 odd number is. You're going to have situations that come up and that you're going to have. You are representing me. I'm giving you authority to represent me. Full authority. Okay. So whatever you do, make sure it's the right decision and you five are going to vote on it. And when you vote, there won't be a tie because five is an odd number. So when you have that odd number, mm -hmm. if, if it's two and two, the fifth guy is a tiebreaker. Right. You know, if it's if it's kill somebody because he disrespected whatever whatever your politics are, you're right there. You're you're witnessing it. I'm in, I'm over here in Pelican Bay. You're representing me. So do a good job. So all the prisons had their mesas, and the mesas were created for that purpose. So now they they take it further. Say, well, why can't we do this on the streets? And, you know, you're thinking, well, the gang members, no, it's going to be a hard one because these guys have a history, decades of fighting against each other. So they came up with a plan. 
the plan was no drive-bys. They spread that word in, in meetings. I have uh, multiple videos of that where they, they spread the word. They're having meetings. They're talking to the guys. No more. Anybody that does a drive-by, we, we take care of you. So the word was put out. No more drive-bys. Because they were benevolent, because they didn't want to see innocent people killed. That's what all the community leaders were, were saying. Hey, these guys are doing what our police can't do. They're stopping all the killings and the innocent people getting hit. Yeah, but that's not the reason. That's not the reason. Their reason is they want to harness the energy and put them under their umbrella. What way to do it? No drive-bys, ethnic cleansing, many areas that had blacks. Attack them. Run them out of your area. We don't need blacks in our area. So they, they started that program. Orange County, kill any black. There aren't that many blacks in Orange County anyway, right, at that time. But it was a galvanizing tactic, a manner of getting all these guys under one cause. You know who else did that? I'm giving you a history lesson, but it's Joseph Goebbels and Adolf Hitler. You unify against a common enemy, right. and that way you can bring disparate people together. So mm -hmm. who did they identify? Same way you talked about the blacks, they identified the Jews. Yeah. That was a way to bring all these different people. I mean, they're utilizing, what I'm seeing here, is they're utilizing tactics that have been used on a global level sure. right, to yeah. do this. It's a tactic. Yeah, it's a universal tactic. And the bottom line, as long as it works... As long as their their ultimate goal is achieved, which is the distribution of drugs, the control of the gangs in the furtherance of these en these enterprises, then you got them eating out of your hand. I questioned. Remember, I had already turned. I was out of the picture, but I I, I keep up with everything. I, I keep up with all of that. It says I don't think the gangs are gonna are, are are going to let that happen. I mean, you're treating them like bitches. You know. I mean. Gang members, they're not bitches. And so my crime partner, Sailor, who I kept in touch with, said, no, I think that's a good idea if they can do it. Well, they did it. It took time. There were gangs that resisted. All the major gangs at one point or another resisted. They all got greenlit. After a few of them got killed or beat or whatever, they came back to the table and said, hey, what does it take to get back in good graces? Hey, you pay a fine. But they just came up with a number. Or they paid the the most important thing is they're they're on board now. Mm -hmm. Then they developed assassins from within their own gangs, like 18th Street, you know, Coco, and I forget a termite and Coco, two major assassins, killing their own gang members. Uh, in the Inland Empire in San Bernardino County, there was a. Uh, uh, what they call the dead president's case. You can Google it and, 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 and check it out. What they did is they got some Sudanios, highly placed Sudanios, to call a meeting of all these presidents of these different gangs in San Bernardino. And they met in a garage. When it was all over, four of them were dead. And the killers, a couple of the killers grew up with them. Their mothers knew each other. I mean, you would think that a gang member, I always say, when, when, when you join a street gang, your street gang family becomes 1A and your natural family becomes 1B. When you evolve into a Mexican mafia member or a Mexican mafia sureño, a, a hardcore one, they, it, that, they become 1A, your, your natural family becomes 1B, and your street gang becomes 1C. It, it goes down in, in stature. So when these guys followed 
the direction of a, of a Mexican mafia homie, I mean, a member from prison who directed them to take these guys out for not complying with the drug thing uh, from within their own ranks. They accomplished this, and it was, I call it the 9-11 of the Inland Empire. I mean, that's that's how dramatic that was. And the message it sent to all the gangs everywhere, especially in Southern California, this can happen to you within your own ranks. I used to like saying the inside controls the outside. If you do not comply, once you, once you see that we're established out there and have all this control, if you are selling dope and you don't want to pay taxes, you don't want to pay the piper, you don't want to get with the Mexican mafia program, What's going to happen? First, you're green lit. If you're able to evade the other gangs on the street, they're going to get you in the county jail, which I call Los Angeles County Jail is Mexican Mafia headquarters, like a clearinghouse. A huma- it's the biggest facility of its kind in the world, uh, population-wise. I think Rikers Island might be second, uh, uh, but they're right there. If you, if you get through the L.A. County Jail, your, your life isn't worth a nickel in a state prison. So you have to lock up. You got to go to protective custody. And what do you lose if you do that? You lose your status. Yeah. Hmm. Man, this is um, this is mind-boggling. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's but see, that's the thing too is that one of the things we learned about from yesterday. Even talking, William Rodriguez was here, uh, the son of uh, one of the major members of the Cali cartel. But you know, people are saying because well, we we hit, we'll have people ask us. We're both cops. You know, they say, why are we interviewing you? You have to understand who you're out there against. I mean, if I don't understand you, I can respect you in a way that says, I, hey, look, first of all, I respect your capabilities, your ability, the way mm-hmm. you guys organize. If I disrespect that, I put my life in danger, you know? Right. So it's, you really do have to understand the way you think, the way you structure things. So we're like, we had some, um, we had some moral qualms even yesterday talking about interviewing one of the guys because, I mean, Murph ran against uh, Pablo Escobar, you know, and those yeah. guys down there, you know? Of course. Yeah. And so, we're sitting here going, yeah, but you know, but the other thing too, there's a duty to tell the story and it's not to say we're not glorifying it and neither are you because we're going to talk about your transition, what happened, but it's really, if we don't get into this and understand this, if people don't understand how intricately the Mexican mafia MA is organized and what it takes, you can't dismantle an organization just by saying, hey, let's go get these guys. How's the structure? Where's the biggest thing is where is power held? Who holds the power? Right. You know, how do you disrupt that? So this this for us, we like doing these things we call master classes. This is like a master class mm-hmm. on uh, Mexican mafia. So yeah. but but you talked about you you, you uh, first of all, I, you've mentioned Pelican Bay. I've seen some videos about Pelican Bay and stuff. Is that which where's the toughest prison in California? At? You know, uh, when you say toughest, um, there was a time everything everything has a season. Uh, the Pelican Bay used to be until these new laws came into effect that released everybody to a general population. No, there's no more shoe security housing unit. Um, that came into existence, I think, well, sometime after. I, I was probably the first shoe guy or among the first shoe guys before there was a shoe. They didn't have anything called shoe. So when Sergeant Hankins at one point locked me up, he, it was really throw away the key and keep me in, in the adjustment center indefinitely. So he did that to some of us because of our suspected uh, uh, involvement in homicides. And I still have the chrono where he says... Uh, uh, to protect uh, for inmate safety and staff safety, uh, we're making uh, Mendoza a uh, 
directors, an EME director's caseload is what they labeled it, member. So they created this shoe unit, security housing, which then became a formal housing. Now they did away with it because of the politicians. California is a very liberal state. Uh, and as you see throughout the country, there's a lot of this going on where the bad guys become the victims. And they don't understand that these a career criminal is like a cancer. And the cancer, if you allow it to spread, it's going to spread. Just like Pelican, the, the construction of Corcoran and Pelican Bay was made to isolate the cancer, hopefully, but it didn't work because they reinvented themselves. Okay, now when you start housing all these guys together again, all you're doing is strengthening, you're fortifying their, their way of communicating. You have cell phones today. I'm still amazed at how they get them. They sneak them in. Well, you know, they're, they're, they're co-opting prison staff, you know, using drones. We're seeing now where drones have brought mm -hmm. in yes. stuff, drugs and phones and dropped them in the prison yard. So here's my rhetorical question to you guys. What's more dangerous and probably with, with, with the, the way, because I'm asking you, you're going to know what's more dangerous, a cell phone or a shank? A cell phone. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's very difficult to kill a guy with a shank, especially if he knows that, that, that you're after him. He's going to run. He's going to dodge. He's going to fight back, you know, whatever. It's not an easy task to kill somebody in prison with a shank. But a cell phone, you can order people the way they operate now made members hardly do any killings themselves. They have, they direct Sudeño gang members and others to do their killing. A friggin' cell phone. I know of examples where you have, uh, uh, you have a guy in a, in a California state prison on a conference call talking to a guy in Tijuana, Mexico, uh, uh, working uh, out there with the cartels, talking to a guy in a federal prison and talking to a guy in Los Angeles, all on a conference call, directing traffic, Talking in code, you know, you, uh, we're not going to know uh, what the, we know. They, you're going to know that we they know want something's something going done. on. We just don't know right. what it is. No, it's called carnival talk. Yeah. So when they talk the carnival talk, they can they can they can use certain words to mean certain things. Oh, yeah, I I know he's saying that they they want to kill him, but it you really don't know what they're saying, but you know that you know that you know that it's not a good thing mm -hmm. what they're saying. You know? Let me ask you a question. When they got rid of the shoe units, weren't there Emmy members that were kind of coordinating that with, with particular politicians who were so liberal they thought they were doing the right thing? Oh, I mean, they, they were, they're always at work behind the scenes uh, uh, with, with phony things. They, they did a hunger strike. Mm -hmm. The hunger strike was part of that. It was a big part of that. And, and, and even that was a farce because you have access to the canteen to get good, to purchase uh, food. Mm -hmm. And and so they, they stockpiled that food, but they rejected the issue prison, from the state, yeah. the prison food. So it makes it look like these poor guys are starving. But they're not really starving. And so that brought uh, additional attention when you have the liberal politicians. Mm -hmm. They've existed forever. Uh, the, the super, they call themselves prisoner rights activists, mm -hmm. things like that. And, and there's a place for them. I'm not saying there isn't. If you want to checks and balances, whatever, but but the, uh, most of these guys are, are subversive. They're uh, actively involved, uh, you know, sm uh, smuggling drugs, many of them. Right. I'm not saying all of them. Uh, smuggling drugs. Uh, there was a case with Angela Davis back in the day. She smuggled uh, or she was uh, assisted in the, the gun that was smuggled in by another attorney was traced back to her, things like that. Yeah. So they are actively involved. 
So they're just being used as lackeys by the M.E. leadership. And then you've got politicians that are liberal. They're Mm -hmm. liberal politicians, and, oh, they think they can fix somebody. The pendulum historically will shift from rehabilitation to punishment Mm -hmm. and back. You know, constantly shifting, and it's like a career criminal does not want to be rehabilitated. (laughs) So why would you try to put him out on a yard mix them in with people that want to do good time, mm-hmm. you're putting them there and you're putting a, a, a wolf with all the sheep. Exactly, exactly. And he's, going, and he's going to run things from the yard and he can supervise. Uh, uh, um, I'm on the yard, okay? I went on a hunger strike. I did all this thing legally. I successfully got the shoe unit closed down. So now from Pelican Bay, I'm on a regular prison yard and everybody on that yard knows I'm a big homie. I don't need the Mesa anymore. Mm-hmm. Those five guys that was running the yard for me, I don't need them anymore. Because now I'm you're there. in direct contact. I'm yep. in direct contact. So I let them know if something happens to me, then you guys can reinstate yourself in the absence of another big homie. So mm-hmm. you reinvented yourself. You became a victim. You got them to release it, I mean, get you out of the shoe unit, yeah. because that actually, rather than doing what they thought it was going to do, it only furthered your um, goals, not their goals. Right. I mean, it's, it's outrageous what the liberal politicians do. Well, and they're making it more dangerous. And then staff, like the wardens, they kind of understandably rely on these prison gang leaders, mm-hmm. Mexican mafia leaders. They rely on them to keep the homicides down and make themselves look good. I mean, nobody wants to see a lot of killings on, on, on you know, racial wars and this and that. So they kind of, it's like going to a gang leader on the streets and saying, hey, Keep your boys under wraps or else I'm going to make your life miserable. Well, they kind of do the same thing with these guys. Control your guys. So, so the homic- keep it to a tolerable level to yeah. where it stays under the radar. And yeah. Because five homicides is better than 15 homicides. Exactly. Yeah. So you can, you, can, you can show those numbers and everything. So now what happens, the guys that are performing or, or that are subject to performing, which is any Sureño, uh, for for a big homie, if I give you an assignment to do, you got to do it because I'm there to supervise. I mean, not I'm not right in your face, mm-hmm. but I'm there, and I and your the assignment's already been given to you. You got to carry it out. If it's a hit, if it's whatever it is, you got to do it. I don't need the mess anymore. I don't need the female facilitators as much as I did before. You know, the, the females were a big uh, integral, and they still are, but not as much. In, with the presence of a maid member on a yard. So all these prisons, I don't know how many prisons they have now. They have a lot of them in California. They're all, they all have workers. They all have inmates that are facilitating and, and uh, I, I mean, uh, you know, paying, paying the piper. And most of them have a maid member there to on, on the spot uh, oversee. Hmm. You know, so we don't want to go through your whole book because we want people to buy it. So we're going to tell them, and this is something they can get on Amazon, right? They can get on Amazon. So yes. we're going to put a link to that. What I want to do is jump forward a little bit because you have a unique ending. And actually, you told me even yesterday, you said, no, you're not going to believe the reasons why I did what I did. But at some point, some point, I mean, you've been in and out of prison. I mean, you've committed murders. At what some point, though, that comes to an end and you start uh doing things for the government. Yeah. Let's so, let's talk about that journey. What what happened to start you like again before like you were young and you started taking this path. What started you down that path to where you decided to to uh 
and, and I'll let you tell the story. I don't want sure. to, but but at some point uh, you're actually working with the government. Right. Uh, I did a lot of damage in a short period of time. I was not. Uh, I was a designer of evil, and I, not only was I organizing uh, violent incidents, but I was on the front lines. So that's what gave me the respect, the reputation. The more you kill uh, for the organization, the more you demonstrate your loyalty. They don't care what you did six months ago, a year ago, whatever. That's all cool. What are you doing for us now? What have you done lately? Mm -hmm. that, 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 I'm just kind of... It sound like the federal government too, Steve? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's what you do when you got to be a supervisor. Right. So I'm kind of <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm putting that in a nutshell. So I was in the highest standing possible at the time. And uh, I get arrested for two homicides in Kern County, Bakersfield. It was a, a, a rival gang member. Uh, it was like a, a twofold thing. It was a revenge hit on a rival uh, prison gang member from the NF. And also it was an area where he was selling dope. And we coveted that territory. So we were going to get that territory. How long were you out of prison when this happened? Uh, September, October. Four, about four months. About four months. And so my crime partner and I, Sailor, went, we had, a, well, I had a female installed, the, the sister of a Mexican mafia member in Bakersfield, and I gave her three, the names of three targets from Bakersfield that we were looking for. Mexican mafia dropout, uh, the leader of the NF, and then this other guy, Woodsy, the, the revenge uh, uh, target. So she couldn't find two of them, but she found Woodsy and, and Woodsy's brother. We utilized her because one of the brothers had the hots for her. So we used her to open the door to the residence. We went in uh, and we, we executed the two of them. Um, when I'm in the Kern County Jail, I'm probably at the, at the depth, not the height, but at the depth of my depravity uh, in my way of thinking uh, I knew I was facing the death penalty, but they ended up uh, doing away with it retroactively. So I, I wasn't going to get gassed. Uh, so, so now the prospect of doing life in prison was what I was facing. That didn't deter me. In a 19-year period, I did 17 years behind bars, which isn't nothing compared to the way they're giving out time today. But at the time, I'm on my way to doing a whole lot of time. And I'm thinking life in prison. It's a family reunion. We're at our... Mentally, spiritually, we're at our finest when we're behind bars. And we run things from the prison system. So you still have your status, your power, and everything. So that, that didn't phase me. That didn't deter me. Uh, uh, sick. I was sick uh, with that mentality. So every Sunday, they would allow people from the churches in Kern County to come in and visit the inmates. I was on walk-alone status, uh, uh, three deputy escorts. What does that mean, walk-alone status? Well, you couldn't you couldn't coexist with other inmates. Okay. You, you know, walk alone. Got it. And uh, a two, two deputy escort to the shower, uh, like a six deputy escort for Sailor and I. He was on a different tier. Uh, we'd go on the elevator together to, to our court appearances, shackled, leg irons, the whole thing. Uh, and back, and, and that was kind of like our status. And uh, uh, considered very, uh, extremely dangerous, uh, you know, all the, the whole ball of wax. I want to ask you a question about that, because that ties into what you're saying. When you first arrived and you saw the, the 
the gun towers, the guard towers. That's like, hey, I'm a badass. So when you're going to court too, and they have to go through all these precautions, is that also kind of like a mm-hmm. a rush? Is like, I am so it bad, is. you got to shackle me up head totally. to toe. Totally, it is. I'm, I'm a badass. I need I need this, uh, you know, to keep me from killing somebody. Like, uh, what's the name of the movie? The uh, Silence of the Lamb. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of guy. You know, and uh, and you know, I I laugh when I see the movie because there, there, there's. Very few guys that dangerous that are going to attack staff. You almost got to be a lunatic. We weren't lunatics. It was controlled depravity is what it was. Controlled violence. Controlled violence. That's what I can yeah. say. Because if you start attacking the staff, they have ways of really making your life difficult, too. Everybody wants to just, even even from the staff side, everybody wants to get along. And it wasn't even that. It was that we weren't afraid of doing time. If, if, a, if, if, the, if the officer, if the police arrest you, Yes, sir. For the most part, submit to the handcuff, you're going to jail. It's like a game with rules that was observed by both sides. You know, police. Now and then you'd get somebody that, oh, yeah, I'm going to shoot it out. You know, some nut and boom, boom, boom and all that. And they'd they shoot it out. Maybe they kill a police officer or a prison guard, uh, you know, or and, and, and maybe they get killed or whatever. But for the most part, no. So I'm in the jail. With this depraved mind, when these people would come in to witness to the other inmates on single cell status, uh, I'm, I wasn't the kind of guy that would disrespect anybody. So I would cover myself, my eyes with a towel, and lay down on my bunk and just ignore them, pretend like I was asleep. So one day, I uh, so they'd just go by me. And so one day, I uh, I decided I was bored and I, I was going to be awake. To, to, to shoot the breeze with so whoever came to my cell. It was an old man, 80-some-year-old man. His name uh, was Nathaniel Elrich, and I still remember. He stopped in front of my cell. He was surprised to see me up because he's used to seeing me asleep or faking it. And uh, so a relationship started, just a conversation relationship. He, he would always pray for me, and I was... Amazed, I remember thinking, "What? Why would a guy like him? He seems so genuine. Why would he pray for an animal like me? You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't deserve his prayers. I mean, so I looked at him and I said, "Man, this guy, man, he's a good man. I mean, he's a sincere to not look at me in a different light, right?" And so, all of a sudden, I started uh, thinking about my victims. And I started experiencing remorse, which is a word that was not in my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. When you're demented, you don't think of that. What's the worst up until that point? What's the worst thing you ever felt when it, whenever you pulled the trigger or did anything? Did anything affect you at all? I wanted to get to the Dodger game before. I wanted to beat the traffic to the Dodger game before the uh, and beat, uh, the, beat the, the traffic and get there in time to watch batting practice. I mean... So, so absolutely for you, those no were your second pr- thoughts. Yeah. 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 There was no, uh, yeah. I mean, er- everything was just like business. Like, okay, you know, you're killing somebody. I mean, it's like, I'm, 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 I'm filing, a, I have to mail this letter at the post office. I mean, there's no. It was a task to be done. And now that you're done with it, right, time to move on to right, the next Right, right. That's how desensitized uh, we were to that. There, there's no, nothing negative about it. We're at the game eating a Dodger dog. Laughing and talking about the expression on his face when, or their face when, when they were done, you know, and then watching the game. 
and sleeping like a baby. So there, there, there was nothing like that. So now I got these people here, and I'm thinking, uh, I'm feeling remorseful. I started, in my mind, I started replaying a lot of my victims, most of my victims, and how they died, how they must have felt when they died, how did their families react when they received the news of their loved one's demise, how would my family feel if they received the same news of me being killed. Mm-hmm. So all those things, and I, I I started feeling bad. It's like, and like a voice talking to me saying, hey, dude, you can't show weakness like that. What's wrong with you? You shouldn't be thinking that way. But I found myself thinking that way. And so that was the first hurdle. The biggest hurdle was forgiveness. They started, they were always talking about forgiveness. And I'm like, no, I don't know about that one. I don't know that the Lord can forgive me for all these killings. I said, just the deputies at escort, they were very professional, but if looks could kill, Sailor and I would be dead. Mm-hmm. You could tell they hated our guts. And uh, my victims' families, I don't expect them to forgive me, so how can I be forgiven? You know, who's this God that would forgive me for anything I've done? So that was the hardest obstacle. And then over time, I one day I said, you know what, I asked, uh, Nathaniel, I said, so how do I do this? He says, well, I can lead you to the Lord. I go, no, can I do it alone? Can I talk to the big guy by myself? He says, sure you can. You know, and he kind of guided me and said, what you do is you you confess your sins, you ask him, you, you, you acknowledge that Jesus died for you, and you ask him to come into your heart. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I said, okay, I'll let you know what happens. So that night, Oh, you had a question? Well, now, yeah, right before you that night, from the first time Nathaniel talked to you till this point, how long of a process was that? I would say about a month. Okay. About a month of reading stuff and literature. He would have a Bible he gave me that I couldn't make heads or tails of and stuff like that. And uh, so now, that night, I remember I got on my knees in the darkness of my cell. Nobody heard me because it's just me talking to the Lord, you know, in a low tone. And I confessed all my sins that I could remember. There's probably multitudes of them. And then there are things that I'm sure I forgot that I said, I know you I know you know which ones I missed. So I'm asking you to forgive me for all of them. And and uh and uh, and I and I and I believe that you that your son Jesus died for me. I I went through all the things that he told me, kinda like a like a blueprint. And then I remember I was cry I cried. It was more like a therapeutic cry. And I felt like something exited my body. And so I wrote that off at that time as just the emotion. Mm -hmm. Later in life, when I thought back about it, I said, I wonder if those were the demons Mm -hmm. that left my body to never reappear. Because according to what, you know, people I've talked to in in, in my uh, uh, Christian uh, uh, church is that, you can never, once you're a believer in Christ, you can never be possessed by a demon. You can be influenced, but you can never be possessed. In other words, a demon can never take up residence in your body. So I think that's what happened. I think the demons exited, left my body. You think they left your body, but so at some point after that, you must have been tempted with like the ability to do a hit again or somebody needs you to do something. Did did How did you know, did anything change for you after that when you were, because you're a made guy. I mean, you're the top of the top. Right. Now you got to hit somebody. What happens now? Oh, no, no. I'm in custody. I, I, I'm in the jail. Okay. So, so I, uh, 
I, they come in, the guys from the church, and I tell them, yeah, I did what you said. I mean, I, I, I confessed everything. I, I didn't hear any voices. I really don't feel any different. And the, and the old man laughed and says, remember what I'm going to tell you. He said, you're not saved by feelings. You're saved by faith. So I never forgot that. You can have a headache. It doesn't matter. Your feelings do not dictate your salvation. Your feelings have nothing to do with it. If you feel good, that's great. But feelings are fickle, as they say. And uh, he says, your faith is is the reason that you are saved. I go, okay, that's good to know. So my next concern, I had a case I was fighting, right? The two murder cases. But I'm thinking, okay, when I get convicted of these and I go back to prison doing life, how am I going to tell my brothers that I'm done? I want nothing to do with them anymore, you know, because that means I get killed. So that's what's going through my mind. I worry about it a little bit, and then I go, you know what? I'm not going to worry about it. And I, So I pray to the Lord, and I said, you take this problem and handle it because I'm not going to worry. I, I'm going to figure out, finish my case here, and whatever happens, happens. So the next thing that happened is the two murder cases were dismissed on a legal technicality, a speedy trial denial thing. They produced a new witness too late on the day that we were going to start trial. They all of a sudden reveal a a new uh, witness, Mm -hmm. so violating the discovery order. But no court... uh, Okay, I'm in a... Kern County is a hang'em high redneck county. There's no way a judge in Kern County will dismiss uh, murder cases against a big city boy coming in and killing one of its citizens, right? But he did, this judge. And, uh, man, so the people come in from the church, and they're praising God, and we prayed for you, and he opened the doors. And I'm looking at them sideways like, God didn't do that. I mean, you know, know, I'm I'm still attributing it just to the, 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 the shenanigans of the attorneys, so now I have an opportunity. My discharge from parole is coming up in one month. I'm in the highest standing possible with the fellas. I just beat two murder cases. No no charges pending. Were they not going to... Re- I mean, they could have refiled, right? Well, Why didn't they... Let me get there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so so they... Uh, I uh, When, that, when that, that's all over, Sailor gets out first because he's already discharged off parole. I'm waiting to be discharged... Uh, this took place in January of 77. In March is my discharge date. So I call up my mom. I decide I'm going to work undercover, helping authority, the authorities. Uh, uh, I, I tell my mom, I want you to call my parole officer, Mr. Rubio, and, and uh, tell him I want to speak to somebody from the SSU. SSU was an internal branch of investigative branch, uh, a special services unit. That's all I knew. These guys were always trying to get us on the streets, investigators. So she said, what's SSU, mijo? And I tell her, Mom, don't worry about it. Just tell him and he'll know. I don't want my mom knowing uh, too much. And uh, and so I get a visit from uh, Gil Avila, uh, Chile from DEA, who was the head of the prison gang task force, and uh, and Rick Minjades, who was a SSU agent. So they both come in to visit me. They, they take me out to an office there. And both of them, their body language is like, no way. Uh, you know, this guy's playing some kind of game. Yeah, we don't get somebody of your stature and your level right, going, right. hey, I want to be an informant right, now. Mm-hmm. Right. So they, they were understandably wary of my intentions. Was I wanting to gloat? Was I, you know, what, what was my game? 
and 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 Chile tells me, he says, uh, so what do you have to gain by all this? Why why are you turning against your brothers? High standing, you know, you're, you're in the best standing. You just beat the cases, blah blah blah. I said, I want to help. I couldn't tell them about the Christian thing. I said, no, nah, they're not going to understand that, right? And they would. I mean, and in fact, if you had told me that, I would have said, oh yeah, every you know everybody finds a job. Jailhouse in Jesus. Yeah, right. yeah, no, no. And I and so I told them simply. I said, look, I'm tired of killing people. I want to help put away people that are doing what I used to do. That was it. He said, okay, well, we'll we'll see. Here's my card. When you get out, give us a call. So the day I get out, I'm going to take the Greyhound and drive back to uh, to L.A., and as I'm walking from the jail with a little box and I got my street clothes on, a car pulls up alongside of me, and it's, and, and it's chilly. He says, Mundo, don't look our way. Keep looking straight. Keep walking, and we'll meet you behind the tr- oh, on the other side of the tracks behind the bail bonds building. I said, okay, because there, there's trustees around. If they see me getting a cop car, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that grapevine, yeah. Yeah, yep. so I walk across the tracks behind the bail bonds building, and there's uh, Rick uh, Minjades has the door open, and I get in the car, and uh, and as we're driving over the grapevine, they're picking my brain, asking me things. Basically, there's nothing I can do but talk, but I, I don't know where anybody's at yet. So the first guy I gave him was Alfie, uh, Alfie Sosa, who was hiding in Tijuana. He was wanted on five or six homicides, and uh, I... I I easily and quickly discovered where everybody was. All the fugitives were at, for sure. The, the, I mean, the, the the guys that were out, I knew I uh, right away knew where they were at. But the fugitives started calling in from where they were at. You know, I was at my mom's house. Remember, no cell phones in those days, mm-hmm. so they were calling my mom's. Joe Morgan was on the run, and he was in Oregon in his camper. He heard I was out. Uh, he was on a phone with a lot of static. Hey, congratulations, brother. Uh, Alfie was in Tijuana. He called, you know. You know, that's amazing. I'm sorry. It's just, it's even even with without the internet and all the mobile phones, how fast word gets around the minute you get out. Mm-hmm. Well, they check in. What they do is they, they would always call and check in with facilitators that we had. And then the facilitators would keep them up to date with whatever they needed to know. And I guess the word already gotten out that we had beat the cases, that Sailor was already out. They fixed him up with drugs and money, car, whatever. And then now I'm when I got and Mundo's getting out. Uh, he's discharging in March, so they kind of already knew. So when my mom's phone rang and it, I saw, it, and then it was Joe. So now I know where Joe's at. And I told uh, Chile and the task force says, "So we can't do nothing yet. Let him work his way here, and let me. I'll get him for you, but don't." Don't burn me. Don't get me in, you know, in a position where I get killed. So they understood the value of keeping me alive. So they let me kind of handle those things. And, and uh, But they were still wary because I hadn't given them anybody yet right. until I gave them Alfie. Actually, we went to Tijuana, across the border, went to Tijuana to, to visit him at, at a residence. And uh, when we came, and uh, Chile had told me ahead of time, when you come back... Um, we'll, at some point, we'll make contact with you. I said, okay. So I figured when I got back to L.A., right? When we get back, we're at the at the border, and the customs guy does his job. He's smiling and, you know, ID, blah, blah, driver's license, whatever. And then all of a sudden, his demeanor changes. A buzzer went off, and I guess, you know, and he says, can you 
pull your car over to the to the secondary right. inspection. Yeah, secondary inspection. So these guys in suits come out and they walk as with me as I'm uh, maneuvering the car slowly that way. Secondary inspection. They escort us to a lobby area where Sailor and I sit, and then uh, they they pull Sailor to a room about ten minutes later. He comes back out, sits next to me. I said, "What's up?" He says, "Ah, they want to know where Alfie's at." What'd you tell him? I told him to get fucked. Okay, so they call me in. I go in, and there's Chili, right? There's mm-hmm. Chili and the task force guys, and he says, "Uh, we don't have that much time. We don't want Sailor to think that that you know." Mm-hmm. And he says, "So give me the directions." I said, "Well, you you turn left on Cananea, you go by the pharmacy, make a right, and he's the second house in the back." Okay, go back out. So I, they're going to release you. Sh- uh, very shortly. So I go back out, sat next to Sailor. Sailor, uh, so what did they ask you? Same thing. They want to know where Alfie's at. What'd you tell him? I told him to get fucked. Oh, okay. So, so Sailor had turned. I didn't know Sailor had turned, and he didn't know I had turned. No. Right? <laughs> yes. I, I'm shocked by that. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. when Sailor got out, you said they gave him a gun, uh, car, drug, well, yeah. and stuff? Yeah, but I didn't know he had turned. Quiet. No, 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 wait a minute. When he got out in January, he hadn't turned yet. He was still dirty. That's what I meant. When he, I got out in March, he had already turned. How did they get him to turn? They, he got arrested in a sweep. I, I have the article when it happened. The sweep took place about two, three days before I got out in March, like first days of March. And uh, so he got caught up in a sweep. He was in the, what do they call it, downtown Parker Center, the glass house, yeah. downtown L.A., so he was there, and uh, they they hit him from both sides. They're talking to him about his kids. He, all he could think of, he told me, was his kids crying. You know, his, his kids were crying when they knocked the doors down and they got the dope and this and that. And so he decided right there that was it for him. And he told them, I, I will give you anybody you want except Mundo. Because we were, were we were not only homeboys, but I had been engaged to his sister. We were a multiple time crime partner. He didn't want to give me up. Mm-hmm. When I turned, I told them this, unbe- not knowing nothing about Sailor, I told the task force the same thing. So maybe they thought that that was a common, you know, what kind of game are these guys playing or something? I told them the same thing without knowing that he had turned, right? So when we're on our way back from Tijuana, you know, when we're when we. When we when we crossed the border, and and we we're coming back from Tijuana after both of us went in and talked to Chile, unbeknown. Well, we we both knew we went in to talk to Chile, but we both lied to each other about what we told him and what you know and all that. Mm-hmm. So as we're driving on on I five heading north uh, back home, uh, Sailor later tells me he said, "Man, I wanted." Out. I wanted the marshals to take me over because he ended up in Witsec. I wanted out because Sailor is too, he telegraphs, he's too excitable. And he telegraphs. I, I, I was cool under fire. I, I, I don't telegraph anything. And, but Sailor was very, he says, Mundo knows me like a book. Don't worry about Mundo. <laughs> they, can't, they don't want to tell him that I'm working for them. And I asked Chili later, why didn't you tell me? That way we could have worked more comfortably. He said that would have been a legal nightmare mm-hmm. in court. You know, how are we going to explain that to the court? You know, no. Right. Yeah, you, it couldn't happen that way. And we wanted the integrity to be genuine and not something that could have been contrived or made up. 
you know, so. So you told me to wait, but I have to ask you because you didn't get to it. How is it you avoided getting the charges filed against you, refiled against you, the ones that you oh, I, I didn't get. Uh, what happened is. Um, they used remember, it to make I worked, a deal with you? I worked undercover for 14 months, right? At, towards the end, in early in early 78, I, I'm notified by a dirty judge that on the appellate court uh, a justice was going to overturn the murder uh, counts. Uh, there was no warrant out yet, but, but the, the, they had appealed. They reversed the... Prior the dismissal decision dismissal. The, now they're going to refile on you. Yes, they're going to refile. She so you kind of warned. So I told the task force. I told them, hey, I'm going to take a little vacation because basically I'm going to be on the run. Uh, there's no warrant out now, so there's no reason for anybody to arrest me, including you guys. And so I'm taking a little vacation, and uh, I will turn myself into you guys at some point soon. But. All that undercover work is stressful because you never know when you're going to get blasted and somebody's going to find out something. Mm -hmm. There's so much I can't, I don't have the time to talk about, I'm sure. But there's so many things that happened while I was undercover that, that contributed to the stress. And so now I want to take a little vacation. So I end up getting arrested in May of 78 by all kinds of agencies that converged. It was a broken play where he, he didn't know who he was. It was a border of... Uh, of uh, Montebello PD, you had CDC, you had East LA sheriffs, you had uh, Monterey Park PD, all converging, and the radio was still blaring to, to send more units because I'm armed and dangerous. I, I'm not busting a grape. I got my hands up, and and uh, Sergeant Sajani is uh, throwing down on a, on a undercover agents from somewhere else, and they're throwing down on him, and he slowly produces a badge. And I'm, I'm in the middle thinking, oh, shit, this is going to be like Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're going to get taken out by friendly fire, and yeah, here you yeah. are trying to surrender. Well, how did they find out where you were at? Uh, I had some people selling dope for me that I, that I, still, I still maintained that uh, relationship. And, uh, and I was living in a... Uh, in a, in a apartment in Monterey Park and so the guy that was supposed to pick up a batch of heroin he's always early wasn't even around so my theory is that he gave me up you get because he didn't yeah. show up yeah but this, but you're supposed to be cooperating but yet you're double dealing there you're still yeah. dealing dope yes yeah I was and and that's all that's like a, a, another story that that's a because there's more to it, you know. There's uh, there's well, even a one eighty. Do we're gonna do another interview? With, yeah, with Mundo because here, gonna, you've got so much good stuff here. And, and, and you want to know about? You're gonna want to know about this because I did become rogue. Mm -hmm. uh, when when you're working undercover, I don't care who you are. If you're from that world, a criminal world, and if you're not, if if your every move isn't monitored by mm -hmm. law enforcement, right, you're going to go rogue. In some form or fashion, right. And that's why you're going to go back to your old yeah. habits. We used to we used oh, to run. Well, it's not even habits. It, it, there's more to it. It's maintaining my cover, right. But profiting from it as well. And there's new opportunities coming along all the time. That's it's it's a yeah. challenge for us because oh, yeah. you know the light. And this could be our next interview with you because yeah. that 
it's a pain in the ass for us. Yeah. Because we don't. It's potentially embarrassing to you guys. And it kills your credibility as, as a witness down cases. the road. Exactly. Oh, yeah. exactly. Anything they use you on, they'll say, well, at the same time you said that my client did this, you were dealing dope, right? And ordering hits. It's yeah. like, yeah. Yeah. there you go. Cases go out there. Well, I explained it. And I testified in many cases. And they got all got convicted or they played out. And But I explained it. I said, hey, task force didn't know because they didn't know. Mm-hmm. Chili told me specifically, mm-hmm. he looked me in the eye and he said, Mundo, and this could be a preview to, to, to that. Right. Uh, Mundo, I cannot give you a license to commit a crime, exactly. any exactly. crime. But, and he kind of gave me a weird look. He said, I'm, we're not going to be looking at you very closely. So basically, he's telling me, do what you got to do to stay alive. Don't worry. We want the bigger game on bigger things. And we'll deal with the other stuff when it comes. He was saying that without saying that. Yeah. Was my interpretation. Yeah. But I would never lay him out that way in court. I would never say, well, you know, he looked at me this. I'm telling you guys that now because it's all it's all over. Uh, right. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, let's cut that right there because this this is going to be a whole nother oh, that's, we, we, conversation. Yeah. I, I mean, we're going to. Which I really want to do because I, I want our listeners to understand how all this develops, what the regulations are, what can happen. It's, it'll be a great interview. Yeah, we'll do that. So, but you know what? But but just the whole masterclass so far about how you organized, how you brought things together, how you structure things, and the, the amazing thing was the continuous evolution of MA and Mexican mafia. You adapted to the times. The shoe changed. Mm-hmm. Your leadership structure changed. I mean, you adapted to things on the street. The use of sureños. In the sureños, the, in right. the camaradas. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, look. Um, <laughs> Plus, I mean, I mean, we still got to get in. Not today, but we still got to get into how you are where you are today. Yeah, yeah. But I we're going to do fantastic. that. So this let's figure good. out how to set that up. So, wh- so th- let's call this part one. This is part one of Mexican Mafia: The Gang of Gangs. His book is called that. Uh, the life of Ramon Mundo Mendoza, from altar boy to hitman. It is the second edition, and I know a lot of folks have gotten it here. I know Murph, you've got a copy sitting in front of you right now. Thank you very much. The difference. And, the difference is the second edition. I added more photographs that I had, I had I also added the telegram uh, directing me to go for my physical to go to Vietnam I mean so yeah, I, I upgraded story yeah, yeah. I upgraded stuff uh, and then uh, what was the other thing oh uh, I added a chapter called officers discretion which after you guys read it you might want to touch on that because it's very mm-hmm. interesting. Well, let's let's figure out how to set that up. So we're going to bring this yeah. part to a close. Like I said, we're down here at the Southern California Gang Conference. You've had a lot. I know you've had a lot of people over there. People are very interested in talking. And don't get me wrong, nobody's approving or giving you a free pass for what you did. But you did your time. You're you're out. And the fact that you could come down here and sit in front of these folks and tell your story, I mean, we appreciate it because very rarely do you get to sit down with somebody. You have mm-hmm. people who, you know. They're on the fringes, right? But to get somebody like you who was at the top of the game and made the decisions you did and then made the decision to get out, uh, we applaud you for that decision to get out. Thank you. So, all right, don't go anywhere. Everybody else right now, stay tuned for the debrief. Man, if that just does not, well, you and I were just talking right before we did the uh, uh, recorded the outro. If that doesn't give you goosebumps, I mean, it's just he admitted to nine, six in prison, one he went to jail for to begin with, two he did afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, he cooperated with the state, and he's probably good potentially for up to thirty. 
Yeah, we haven't. Like I said in the in the intro, we haven't even scratched the sur- surface with Mundo here. Um, but I think if we do, and again, you know, we want to hear your responses. Uh, if you don't want to hear any more from Mundo, you just tell us. But we think it's a, a an opportunity to see the inside of what really goes on in these type of criminal organizations. That's why we put him on here. Uh, and our thanks go to to Mundo for taking the time to talk yep. to us. Uh, he had, you know, he has a little business going on, and he took the time out from his business to give us this interview. So, uh, I, you know, I'm uh, I'm not sure honored is the right word, but um, but you know I, what, I am, it was refreshing. Uh, and you know, the thing is too, but it's important that we have conversations like this. So, yeah. we're very pleased that he took his time with us. Um, you know, to do that, like you say, honored is a different word. We come from different sides. Uh, of the spectrum when it comes to justice. So, but you know what I can say that, like you say, we, we've talked to people who are legitimately living a new life. They've turned over a leaf, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then there are some people who just fake it. Um, he's sincere. Um, and one of the things he wants to do is he really wants to change this culture, keep kids out of gangs. He knows full well what it's like. So, Absolutely. um, yeah, you know, and that's, but this is one of the things folks you cannot if you can't define, uh, there's an old saying in the military, if you can't define your enemy, you can't defeat your enemy. Mm-hmm. You have to understand what goes into the the thinking of the minds of your adversary, why respect is so important to them, why perceived slights create gang wars, why territory is so important, and how law enforcement can do a better job of interacting with them, how to uh, find the levers they need to pull so they can get people to tell them information, or like with Mundo, eventually he realized um, you know, this, this was not going to turn out well for him, you know? You know, and, and for him, even mentioning the six murders that he wasn't charged with, uh, most of you already know this, there is no statute, statute of limitations on murder. So, um, it's not that he's trying to avoid things. I think he was extremely open and honest with us and Mundo, we truly appreciate that. We appreciate your time. Uh, pleasantly surprised with the interview that you gave us. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what, uh, I can see we were home no time before he contacted us via email uh, to pursue this with us. So, uh, you know, I can foresee this being a friendship uh, as strange as that sounds coming from, you know, my 38 years in law enforcement, your time in law enforcement, his time as a bad guy. Now his time as a good guy. That's, that's a strange thing to say, but I do see a friendship developing here. Well, Murph, you know, I go back and I think about we were at war with Japan and Germany and now they're two of our closest allies, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, this, like the world you say, changes. You learn. You learn from your enemies. Yeah. So anyway, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. If you did, head on over to uh, Apple, Spotify. Just, you know, rate those five stars. Tell us what you think about it, right? Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. We've got the link to the book there. Follow us on social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Uh, And what we forgot to mention in the intro, we'll do in the outro, but Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We've got a lot of great content on there. Uh, We just released our uh, You Can't Make This Shit Up. Some uh, interesting stories on that. Uh, We've got our case of the month coming up, uh, 911, What's Your Emergency? Uh, We'll do our Narcometer review and then our Warden of the Throne exclusive for our people at the highest levels. But you guys head on over there, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. And again, we just want to thank you guys for listening. Again, like Murph said, drop your notes to us, whether it's on Mm -hmm. Facebook, put it on Twitter. Um, Just hit us up. Let us know what you think about the episode. And so we thank you guys. Stay tuned because they're probably looking looks like there will be a part two to Mundo. But thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, and as you found out, the most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes. 